Hi, Professor Stanley here, and I am back with Chapter 13 in your book, which is on disorders of anxiety, stress, and trauma. I just wanted to start by saying, in many ways, this is going to be one of the more important lectures and concepts that we'll have throughout the year, because one thing that is true about working in healthcare is most of our patients are probably going to be experiencing anxiety. If you are a surgical nurse and your patient's wheeling back into surgery, odds are they're having some anxiety. If you're in a psychiatric unit or you're with a patient who is you know, ill in some way, all of these things can be anxiety-producing circumstances. So we need to be able to have good tools in our toolbox to be able to help our patients relieve some of their suffering and start to feel some relief from that anxiety. And the good news is I'm going to teach you some of those skills today and as you practice them and become proficient at them, you will get better at it. By today, I mean in our class period. Sorry if you're listening to the podcast and that confused you. Anyway, let me just go on. Okay, so the book starts out by saying that anxiety is normal and it's universal and it's generally helpful and healthy in a response to stressors and circumstances that we may encounter in our life. For most people, when the anxiety subsides, then they'll go back to a normal state of being or, you know, a homeostasis. But for others, anxiety can be a cause or an outcome of distress within the individual. The anxiety itself can produce more anxiety. This is a very unhealthy state of functioning, as you could see, where somebody lives in a state where they're constantly anxious, and it produces physiological changes within the body that can be very detrimental to the individual. So I do want to say that anxiety is highly subjective. And by that, I mean that what causes you anxiety may not cause me anxiety. So let's say, for instance, that you culturally do not have animals in your home. And so, like, for example, I had a Korean friend who came over to my home, and she's not used to dogs because they don't have big dogs in their homes in Korea. So when she came into my home and she saw this big, friendly, wonderful golden retriever of mine, she looked at the dog and she was very afraid. I had to go and put the dog up in the bathroom because she was afraid that the dog would harm her in some way. And it was a very real, you know, kind of feeling for her. And I wanted to honor my guest. In the same way, you know, I really like dogs. I mean, my dog was a really sweet fellow. He would go on walks with me. He liked to snuggle. He was sweet as could be. The same thing for cats. One of my friends from um, somewhere in Africa, she is not used to cats. She doesn't have a lot of exposure, so she's afraid of them. Whereas for me, if I could cuddle kittens all day long, it would make me very happy. So you can see how anxiety can be very subjective, and the perceived threat can be based upon culture, as well as our past encounters with something that might cause it to happen. And there are some very real physiological things that will go on in relation to anxiety. If you look on page 242 of your book, it talks about anxiety responses by domain. And I kind of wanted to go through the biological responses. For some people, they're going to get, you know, nausea and vomiting when they're anxious. You might have blurred vision, chest pain. Many times anxious patients will think they're having a heart attack. You can have sweating, you know, your pupils will be dilated. You might have um, hyperventilation. I've seen this very frequently on the psychiatric unit where a patient begins to hyperventilate. Elevated blood pulse, um, I'm sorry, elevated pulse, elevated blood pressure, you know, increased respirations, fidgetiness, headaches. A hypervigilant state is extremely common, especially in children's psychiatric units where you have victims of trauma. 
pacing back and forth. Um, I would go on to say irritability as well, although the book doesn't list it, but that can be um, an anxiety symptom. So you can see that there are a number of things that happen in the body in response to an increased anxiety level. And you're probably already familiar from previous classes with the fight-or-flight response, which is part of the autonomic nervous system. Remember that the autonomic nervous system is divided into two parts, the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous system. And triggering of the sympathetic nervous system is triggering of this autonomic nervous system. And if you know, I did put a PowerPoint out there on a stress lecture that I did previously. And one of the questions I ask in the second slide is, what if your car stalled on the train tracks and a train was coming? I want you to think about the stress response by asking yourself this question. What would you need to survive? If you think about it this way, then it's not so hard to imagine what might be the things of the autonomic nervous system that would activate when this fight or flight response is triggered in, in response to a real or a perceived stressor. Here again, I'm going to tell you that sometimes the stressor is real, sometimes it can just be perceived, but you're still going to have the same reaction physically either way. So if you're trying to get off the train tracks, what are you going to need? You're going to have an increase in visual acuity because you need to be able to see your environment and, you know, obviously see if something's coming at you. So your pupils are going to dilate. You're going to need an increase in the heart rate to pump the blood to the muscle so that you can run. You're going to need that, you know, increased blood flow. You're going to need increased oxygenation. So guess what? Your respiratory rate's going up. No wonder we have those physiological responses. You're going to need increased energy. So guess what? Your body's going to re release some glucose that's been stored in your body. You're going to need to be able to hear better. And you know what? You're not going to need to be able to digest your meal right then or to be able to produce urine right then. Remember, the key here, as described by Walter Cannon, the father of the, um, you know, the stress response with the fight-or-flight response, the key here is survival. What do you need at the moment to be able to make it to the next moment of life? So if you think about it, if at this point your life ends, your ability to digest that meal isn't going to matter one little bit. And, you know, I was thinking about this in response to, um, I did have a, a NICU baby one time where I, when I was working in NICU, when I was a nursing student, I had a baby that I went to take the vital signs and the incubator had broken, the isolate had broken, and the temperature regulator on it had. And so the baby's temperature had dropped significantly to, you know, like, I think it was 96-something. She was doing pretty pretty poorly at that point, but she hadn't started to show the response and vital signs that it would have indicated that yet. But when I pulled back her feeding, the entire 10 cc's that had been fed to her previously was all still in her stomach. Because her digestion had shut down to try to survive this decrease in temperature that occurred. Now, of course, we got the isolate fixed. We warmed her up. She was just fine. But I wanted you to know that that was a very dramatic illustration for me of how unimportant the digestion is when it comes to the stress response. So when we have the activation of the sympathetic nervous system, the survival mode that we're going into, the fight-or-flight response, then we are going to have a shutdown of these non-vital processes. And just to take you through the process of what occurs, when a threat does appear imminent, then the hypothalamus will receive information from almost all parts of the brain, including the limbic system, 
particularly the amygdala, and it will function as the command and control center when receiving these stressful signals. Now, of course, that's when we're going to have the activation of the autonomic nervous system with the sympathetic nervous system, and it's going to send signals to the adrenal glands, which will reduce, re release epinephrine or adrenaline. Then the circulating adrenaline will be used to increase the heart rate and do all these things that you need in order to survive. Obviously, this process is going to happen very, very quickly. After the initial rush of adrenaline subsides, the hypothalamus then will stimulate the HPA axis or the hypothalamus pituitary gland and adrenal gland, that's the HPA. And if the stress is prolonged, then it will release corticotropin hormone, corticotropin releasing hormone, CRH, which in turn travels to the pituitary glands and triggers the release of adrenocorticotropic hormone, ACTH. ACTH then travels to the adrenal glands, stimulating the release of cortisol. And cortisol is the primary stress hormone. It helps to supply the cells with amino acids and fatty acids for energy, as well as diverts glucose from muscles for use by the brain to maintain vigilance. So this kind of describes what happens with the physiology of this process, but also there are some stages that were described as this process occurs. The first stage being the alarm stage. This is, of course, by Selye in 1956. The alarm stage is the acute phase where the body recognizes there is an internal or external stressor. And it, of course, will react the same whether the threat is real or the threat is perceived. It doesn't have to be a real threat in order for this to be activated. And when it happens, all this chemical process that we've already described goes into play. Eventually, if the stressor is not resolved, we reach the stage of resistance. And in this stage, the body continues to defend itself with a fight-or-flight mechanism and tries to repair any damage that's been suffered. Um, during the stage, the body may function and adapt at lower than optimal levels. And if the stage is not resolved by a resolution of the anxiety, then they may move on to the exhaustion stage where the body experiences a total expenditure of energy where you have physical and psychological manifestations that may occur like migraines or hallucinations or delusions and the body is no longer able to adapt at this level and begins to fail. Vital systems may become compromised. You might have um, you know, infections that may develop and without relief or resolution of the stressor, death may occur from cardiac arrest or renal failure or something else. Now, the book goes on to talk about psychoneuroimmunology. That's a mouthful, isn't it? Psychoneuroimmunology. But basically, this has to do with the fact that when stress is chronic, that you are going to have things that go on in the body that are going to make you more susceptible to physical illness. And it may, you know, cause permanent changes in the body. It also talks about cytokines, which are proteins that are released by immune cells, and they are signal molecules that transmit information from the immune system to the endocrine and nervous system, and also within the um, immune system, and it activates specific receptors, and they can modulate their own function or the function of other types of cells, and they influence brain function or talk to the brain by activating the HPA axis. Now, if you do take a look at the slides that I put out on the uh, D2L site on stress response, you'll see slide six talks about stress and its work on the immune system. 
and how these cytokines activate and recruit immune cells and then higher levels and inflammation are found in depressive patients and a reduction in the cytokines decreased depression and also how serotonin is more active in stress and may impair receptor sites and the brain's ability to use serotonin. So basically what all of this tells us is that stress is detrimental when it comes to the psychiatric side of patients. If patients are experiencing long-term st stress, they are much more susceptible not only to physical illness, but to the mental illnesses as well. And so this is why when we see children who are children of trauma or even children of you know, poverty who are constantly worrying about where their next meal is going to come from, people that are living at that very base of the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, we're going to see a predisposition for mental illnesses in those patients. Now, also, I wanted to mention that there are two different types of stress. There is distress and there's eustress. When you look at the picture on slide seven, if you take a look at that, you will see an example of a distress and a eustress. The distress is the person who's in the hospital and their mom is by their bed and she's holding her child's hand and obviously she's in a period of great distress. And then you also see, um, my, it's actually my daughter and, her, and my son-in-law at their wedding. And this is an example of eustress. Both of these are stressors. And even though the eustress is a good stressor, sometimes you know, the, the stress level on the body is going to be basically the same. So that is a problem. Now let me just also mention real quick before we go on that there is something called acute stress which are acute anxiety, which is a temporary condition in which an individual experiences heightened feelings of apprehension, tension, nervousness, and worry. And this is also known as state anxiety, and it's often situational. Like, for example, my daughter got married. This was a stressful situation. It's an example of a eustress. It's still a stressor, but it's something that resolves after the event. Now, another type of anxiety is chronic anxiety or trait anxiety, and this is anxiety which is longer term, and it can be a basis of personality characteristics or it can be, you know, stressors that are chronic and ongoing, but either way, this trait anxiety can be the type that will actually um, compromise the immune system. So anyway, let me go ahead and talk about the different levels of anxiety as well. Um, you know, certain levels of anxiety may be good and may increase your focus, but as you move up the level of anxiety, they can cause you to actually be able to not focus. For example, with mild anxiety is what you may experience before a test. You may be restless, irritable. You may have increased motivation to do well. And, you know, that may actually drive you to study harder. It may cause you to do better on the test. Moderate anxiety is when you have some discomfort, your heart rate may go up, you're going to have some tension in your muscles, you may perspire, have an increased respiratory rate, have an increased rate of speech, and you know, you still might have some learning that goes on at that point, although it's probably not going to be as effective as maybe if it were more mild. But then when you get up to the severe and panic level of anxieties, nothing is going to be retained by you or anyone else. It's basically where you're dizzy and you have diarrhea and you may feel dread, you may have hyperventilation, insomnia, nausea, all these terrible symptoms that may cause you to really have a difficult time. And at the severe level, your focus becomes entirely upon yourself. Then if you get all the way to the panic level, this is when it becomes very difficult. You may have sleep, sleeplessness, um, unusual behaviors like shouting, screaming, running, you know, clinging, um, all kinds of things, a withdrawal on yourself. 
you know, delusions, hallucinations may occur at this level. Obviously, at this point, it's a total shutdown of the person at this point. So I did go ahead and put on um, a couple of scales that were also on the uh, D2L platform. The first one being the Holmes and Ray readjustment scale, which help you to kind of assess where you are right now in the life stressors. And as we talked about, you know, mental health and mental illness, everyone is on a continuum all the time and different situational stressors can cause us to go up and down. Looking at where you are in the life stress scale may help you be able to see, you know, where you need to maybe make some modification. So for example, the semester that my daughter was getting married, she had a difficult time in school and her life stressors were many. She had um, a difficult thing going on in her engineering classes where she was in the middle of her capstone class and she was struggling and she was planning a wedding and it was just way too much stress and it became overwhelming for her. This is an example of how those things on the readjustment scale may have been modified or she may have been done some, may have been able to do some things to counter some of the eustress that she was experiencing. So maybe better self-care or taking time for herself or long hot baths or walks in the park, anything that could have decreased her stress would help her to manage it better. But I will let you know that the higher your scale is, the higher your score in the Holmes and Ray scale is, the more likely you are to have some severe symptoms that may occur. I also put one out for employers because I think it's nice for us to be able to kind of have a grasp on where we are in our jobs and what kind of stress it's causing us because we always have the option to change the culture around us and our jobs or to find something different that will allow us to function better. We don't want our lives to be totally a source of stress because of our jobs. The book goes on to talk about defense mechanisms that individuals can use when they are experiencing a threat to the ego that kind of like challenges their ability to problem solve or to counteract some stressors. And you know what, I want to point out that we all use some level of defense mechanisms from time to time. And what's important is the frequency that we use them, the intensity of the use, and the duration of how long we use them. So for example, say that you have a person who just found out that their child died. The initial reaction is denial. And that is to protect the ego because of the fact that this is a huge stressor and it threatens to overwhelm that person. Now, obviously, a short-term use of denial in this instance is actually going to be able to help that person. It's avoiding or ignoring or rejecting a real situation and the feelings that are associated with it. So temporarily, it may be okay to use denial. But if that denial were to persist long-term, then that would be an example of an unhealthy use of a defense mechanism. These are important because, as I said, sometimes these things can become very maladaptive as they continue over time. And so we want to be aware in our patients, you know, if they're using a defense mechanism and if it's something that's helping to protect them at the time or if it's something that has gone on so long that it has become maladaptive. Humor is something else that people can frequently use, which is to empathize, you know, to emphasize ironic or amusing aspects of a conflict or stressor. And the idea is to diffuse a situation by the use of humor. And so obviously it can be very appropriate if it's short term and it works on the situation. But if it were continue to continue long term and allow an individual to not deal with something that they needed to deal with, then it would be very maladaptive. 
So if somebody continued to use that humor, they may not deal with a stressor that had gone on in their life um, or something like that. Another defense mechanism you may see frequently is that of rationalization, which is justifying an illogical idea, action, or feeling by using acceptable explanations. So you're thinking about, you know, it's kind of like a self-deception. It's a way to protect your ego from an assault. So say, for example, you did really poorly on a test. You might say, oh, it's because I didn't get enough sleep the night before, rather than saying, oh, it's because I didn't study or because I wasn't smart enough. And you're obviously trying to displace those feelings that you have of maybe not being good enough or not being adequate in the role for what you're trying to assume. Now, I want you to know that when it comes to stress, there are some mediators of stress, and you'll find these on slide eight of the PowerPoint that I posted. First of all, the perception of the stress. We've already talked a lot about how people feel about a stress and how frightened they are of something. And, you know, you can overcome some of that. So there are some different therapy techniques that you can use to overcome different fears or phobias that you may have. And, you know, some examples of things that may be perception related would be like, for example, an elevator. Are you claustrophobic? How do you feel about getting on an elevator? Maybe it's related to you having been stuck on one at some point. The good news is, is that you can gradually build up a tolerance for this and be able to not perceive it as quite so stressful. Temperament, you know, how confident are you in social situations? That may also be something that can mediate stress. Are you somebody that's really, really comfortable in social situations? Or are you somebody that is very introverted and you feel very uncomfortable? What kind of social support do you have? Do you feel that you have people that you can count on? Are there people that you can call if you need some help? Are there support groups that are easily accessible to you? AA, Divorce Recovery, Celebrate Recovery. Even your culture can be a mediator of stress. How you choose to perceive things, how your cultural per- culture perceives things, the amount of ability that you have to express stress and express your, you know, your inner workings of your mind and your culture, or is it something that's expressly forbidden? We don't talk about that. That can be a mediator of stress, or it can be something that causes stress. And your religious beliefs or spirituality can be a mediator of stress because, you know, many people, when they feel stressed and they, they're under these stressful situations, they turn to their faith culture and to their inner faith and their relationship with God. And that becomes something that helps them to greatly relieve their stress. Now, I pulled one of my old books to pull up a stress response um, diagram that I hope to take a picture of and post online. But it was looking at the long-term chronic effects of stress. I just wanted to kind of read through those so you can be thinking about them. Um, And this is a result of the HPA um, C-axis or the hypothalamus pituitary adrenal cortex um, axis. And the long-term effects are immune system compromise, atherosclerosis, atherosclerosis, depression, high blood pressure, insulin insensitivity, obesity, high blood lipids, high blood lipids, protein breakdown, blood, bones, muscle, immunoglobulin. And there's something that this book has termed the short-term or the sympathetic adrenal medulla or SAM. And it talked about the long-term effects of that, which was a high resting heart rate, heart disease, platelet aggregation, reactive high blood pressure, cholesterol, triglycerides that are high, renal hepatic problems, glucose intolerance, chronic muscle tension, hyperventilation, digestive problems, chronic anxiety and anger. And both of these work together to cause different 
you know, long-term illnesses such as diabetes, cancer, ulcers, allergies, immuno- autoimmune diseases, arthritis, headaches, you know, reduced immunity, kidney and liver, heart disease, stroke, heart attack, essential hypertension. So you can see that most of the illnesses that we attribute to um, people who are under high stress are a result of this stress activation and the stress response that occurs in the body and what it does on a long-term basis. So I'm going to go ahead and end there, and we're going to continue later with more anxiety and um, disorders of anxiety and disorders of the stress response. But I thought that'd be a good spot to kind of break off and start another podcast. Thank you for listening.